On today's episode, Uncle Frank had a special job. He was in charge of bad ideas. Now, every family has one of those, don't you? There came a day when she wandered into this town where a great crowd had gathered in the center of town. They had gathered because there was a man standing there right in the center, tall, standing up on a riser right there, talking out to everybody, speaking loudly with a commanding voice. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers here on The Appleseed. It's time for The Appleseed. In each episode of the show, we bring you a couple of stories from a couple of favorite storytellers. And we always hope that their stories bring to mind experiences and thoughts for you that you can remember and share. That kind of storytelling between you and the people you love can make for lifelong memories. Today, a story from one of our very favorite storytellers, North Carolina's Donald Davis. Donald has been involved in growing storytelling traditions all over America, establishing festivals and storytelling associations, presenting workshops and performances for audiences young and old, large and small, for half a century, since the 1970s. His stories are often about growing up in the North Carolina mountains in the middle of the last century. And his tales connect us to people and traditions that, but for the stories, might be lost to us. And even if you've never been to the North Carolina mountains, I bet you'll see in Donald's stories about his family, a little bit of your family. And speaking of that family... Do you have a crazy relative who seems to corner the market on bad ideas? Have you had something devastating happen that over time grew into a favorite story your family loves to share and even laugh about? Is there someone in your life that stitches you back together when your world falls apart? Then this is a story for you. Here's Donald Davis with a story called The Swimming Hole, recorded live in the Appleseed Studio. Thank you, thank you, thank you. My father was born in 1901. Uh, he was number eight of 13 children. He was born on a, on a little farm way back in the Smoky Mountains in North Carolina. Most of that land today is part of the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. But see, right in the middle of those 13 children, there were four boys right in a row that were just one year apart. There was Uncle Moody, Uncle Harry, then my daddy, and Uncle Frank. And they grew up so inseparable and so right together throughout all their lives. And I used to love to hear my daddy tell me and my little brother stories about things they did when they were little. It was probably about 1910. Those boys were about say, 9 and 10 and 11 and 12 years old, when one summer they were helping their daddy, my grandfather, do what they called making hay. They had what my dad described as a beautiful team of blonde Belgian workhorses. And they would mow the hay and then hope that it could dry in the sun for a couple of days without being rained on. And then they would rake it up into little windrows and then rake those rows up into little piles. And there was a way they could throw a chain around that pile of hay, the chain hooked to the horse, and stand on it and pull it back to the barn. And then the real work started of building the big haystacks around two poles, like two big 
telephone poles at the end of the barn, hay th- so it would shed water all through the winter, and the cows could eat off those haystacks all through the winter. And at the end of one of those days of work, they would have hay everywhere, hay up their nose, hay down inside their clothes, hay in their ears, hay in their hair. They would be itching to death all over. Well, my daddy would say, what would you want to do at a time like that? And my brother and I would say, take a bath. That's so he could say, you know, we didn't have a bathroom. So what they would do is they would walk about a mile to the Pigeon River. And then they would take off all their clothes. Nobody was around watching anywhere. And they would shake their clothes and shake their clothes and try to beat all the hay out of their clothes. And then they'd jump in the river and they'd swim around and they'd get some of the sand along near the edges and they'd scrub and scrub and scrub till they got all the itchy parts off. And then they'd shake their clothes some more while they're running around till they got dry and then they'd go back home. One of those days, they finished working in the hay and they started to go to the river. When all of a sudden, Uncle Frank... That was my dad's youngest brother. And in their family, my daddy said, Uncle Frank had a special job. He was in charge of bad ideas. (laughs) Now, every family has one of those, don't you? Frank said, it's too far to run a mile to the river. What we need is a swimming hole at home. His brother said, well, what in the world is that? He said, I read about it in a book. It's what rich people have. It's a big hole in the ground out behind your house. It's full of water. And anytime you want to, you go out there and jump in it. Let's dig one. (laughs) And my daddy said, he told his brothers, it sounded like it was dangerous. And Uncle Frank said, that's why we're not going to tell anybody. I remember going to visit out at that farm when I was growing up, and and right outside the kitchen door, there was a big sort of half-moon-shaped rock that came up out of the ground, and they decided to go on the other side of that rock so if their mother, my grandmother, looked out there, she wouldn't see what they were doing. (laughs) They went to the barn, and they gathered up all the tools they could dig with, spade, shovel, mattock, pickaxe. And they came out behind that rock. But now my daddy had said, I'll watch you get in trouble, but I'm not going to help. And they marked off a big square on the ground. It was late summer, and it hadn't rained in so long. The ground was so hard, they just couldn't dig a hole in it. But then Uncle Frank got an idea. He said, let one of us take the mattock. And we'll chop and chop and chop and chop till we get some dirt loose. And then another one can take the shovel and shovel that dirt out. And then we'll chop some more and shovel some more and chop some more and shovel some more. And they figured if they kept doing that, in about 100 years, they'd have a swimming hole. (laughs) So they were working away. Uncle Harry is chopping with the mattock and Uncle Frank is shoveling with the shovel. Now, in addition to being in charge of bad ideas, my dad used to say that his brother Frank, my uncle, was born with a slight birth defect. He was born 
without a lid to go on his mouth. (laughs) And it ran all the time. He talked all day long. He had to put food back in several times because he kept talking while he was eating. He had stopped talking just long enough to go to sleep at night, and then he'd talk in his sleep all night. And my daddy said when Uncle Frank was talking, it consumed his entire mentality. Are you getting the picture now? Uncle Harry's chopping with the mattock. Uncle Frank is shoveling with the shovel and talking. And one of those times when Uncle Harry came back with the mattock, at the same time, Uncle Frank bent down with the shovel. And the mattock came down and chopped him right in the top of the head, and the blood spurted out, and he started screaming, I'm killed, I'm killed, I'm killed. (laughs) And his brother said, you're not killed or you couldn't holler like that. Well, they all went running toward the house. Now, imagine this. My poor grandmother is in there washing the dishes. She hears a big noise, looks out the back door. Here comes one of her boys with blood squirting out of his head, hollering, I'm killed, I'm killed. Here comes another one with a shovel and another one with a mattock. Well, they all came running inside, and, and, and she looked at his head, and she took the dish rag, and, and she washed it all out in cold water, and she held it on his head, and then she washed it out, and she held it on his head, and she kept, finally, finally, it stopped bleeding. And then she looked at his head, and she said, so that's what the bone looks like. <laughs> he was chopped to the bone. Well, here's when the real problem started. They lived 16 miles from town on nothing but an old dirt farm road. Nobody had a vehicle of any kind. Nobody knew how to drive. They just had those workhorses. And even if they got to town, they didn't even know the name of a doctor. So as usual, my grandmother figured she had to take care of it. So She got a a pot of water boiling on the stove, and she dropped something in that pot of water. And then she got out her straight razor. It was her straight razor because she was the one who always shaved my granddaddy with the straight razor. And she shaved the hair off all around where Uncle Frank's head was cut. And then she got the other boys to hold him down. And she fished in that pot of border water and fished out what she had dropped in, a big needle and thread. And while three brothers held him down, she sewed his head up. And then she said to my granddaddy, I've never done this before. I don't know if I got it right. You better take him to town and find a doctor because it might have to be done over again. And so my granddaddy got, my, got, got Uncle Frank on one of those workhorses. They rode all the way into town. It was after dark when they got there. One of the older brothers, the older ones who was 15 years older, already lived in town. They went to Uncle Grover's house, spent the night, and the next morning he took them to meet the doctor. The doctor looked at Uncle Frank's head, checked it all out, and asked my granddaddy three questions. Did this boy's mother sew his head up? Yes. Did she boil the needle and thread first? I don't know how she knew to do that, but yes. And then the last question, does she make quilts? (laughs) 
He said, yes, why? The doctor said, well, I would have put in about six stitches. I think she gave him 30. <laughs> Little teeny tiny close-up stitches. The doctor said she did such a neat job, it might not even leave a scar when it heals. <clears throat> and then they got out a big brown glass jar that said iodine on the side of it. And they painted his head with iodine, and he started screaming, I'm killed, I'm killed, because it was just burning him up, all the alcohol in the iodine was. Well, finally, they went back home. And then Uncle Frank looked in the mirror, and he started laughing. There, his head had a big swarp shaved off of it by his mama. And then he had a stripe painted down right where she sewed him up. He thought, I'm so funny looking. <laughs> They'll never make me go to church looking like this. <laughs> Guess what? They did. <laughs> and my daddy said there hadn't been that much laughter at church for 20 years. <laughs> well, when it was all over, my granddaddy got those boys together, and he said, now, boys, let's talk a little bit. You know, there ought to be some punishment. But you know what I always say? If you learn something... That's better than being punished. So here's the deal we'll make. If each one of you can tell me something you've learned through this, there won't be any punishment for anybody. He said, Moody, you're the oldest, so you go first. Did you learn anything? And Uncle Moody thought, and then he said, yes. We don't need a swimming hole. <laughs> My granddaddy said, that's good. He said, uh, Harry, did you learn anything? And Uncle Harry thought, and then he said, yes. If you ever need to get a whole bunch of blood out of anybody right quick, hit them right, whack in the top of the head. <laughs> and my granddaddy said, well, I never thought about it, but I guess that's right. <laughs> I guess that'll do. He said, Frank, did you learn anything? And Uncle Frank said, I sure did. If two people are working, and one of them has a shovel, and one of them has a mattock, you better be the one that has the mattock. <laughs> and then he said to my daddy, little Joe, did you learn anything? And my daddy said, I didn't need to, because since Frank thought it up, I already knew it was a bad idea. <laughs> But if I ever grow up and have children, I'm going to tell my children that their Uncle Frank is the best teacher they'll ever have. <laughs> they need to ask him questions, watch what he does, ask him questions, listen to what he says, and then don't dare do any of it. <laughs> we have a little grandson who is seven years old. No, he's just had a birthday. He's now eight years old. His daddy is Kelly, and our grandson's name is Frank. Guess what he has to live up to? <laughs> and he got that name because in Kelly's childhood, he remembers his great-uncle Frank as his favorite relative. The strange thing is, Kelly's great-uncle Frank died about five years before Kelly was born. But Kelly has heard so many stories, 
so many stories, so many stories that you just can't convince him that he doesn't really remember his Uncle Frank. And that's how powerful stories are because they can keep people alive who are no longer walking around with us. Donald Davis with The Swimming Hole, a story recorded live in the Appleseed studio before our terrific studio audience. I guess everyone has an Uncle Frank in their family, and I suppose the story of Donald's uncle, who was in charge of bad ideas, like Donald says, could remind me of the trouble I got in myself as a kid, and of the friends and family members who were my partners in crime. Or it might remind me of unusual injuries, stitches and scars, and the story of why I have a scar on the bottom of my chin even today, right in the same place that it seems like a lot of people do. Those are all good stories. You never know what's going to bring on a memory, and you never know what memory it's going to bring on. And Donald's story about Uncle Frank brings to mind for me memories of my own uncles, Mike and Paul, my mother's brothers. They weren't in charge of bad ideas like Uncle Frank, really, and they didn't get me in trouble. But they took me camping and to the movies, and they took turns throwing me impossibly high in the air for spectacular landings in the swimming pool. And they played in rock and roll bands, and they gave me the only real nickname I ever had, Samwise, after the loyal hobbit companion in the Lord of the Rings books. They call me Samwise even today. And I'm suddenly filled with fond memories of those guys, and I'm grateful for the portions of their great big Uncle Hearts, that beat inside of me. And speaking of beating hearts, coming up in a moment, a story by Adam Booth that gets to, shall we say, the heart of things. But as you think about Donald's story, I bet some stories came to mind for you from your own life or the life of someone you know, just like I was reminded of Uncle Mike and Uncle Paul. If so, open your mouth, share those stories with someone. Stories can grow like seeds into great conversations. Adam Booth, coming up. I'm Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure to be with you on The Apple Seed. A moment ago, we heard The Swimming Hole, a story from the great storyteller Donald Davis. And next up, we have an Adam Booth story. It's a story that has resonated with a lot of people, and the author of the story is unknown, but it's a tale that has cropped up in business talks and self-help books, ministries, and more. We recorded Adam's version live in The Apple Seed studio. Here's The Most Beautiful Heart in the World, Adam Booth on The Apple Seed. Thank you. <laughs> well, I have a, a short story to close out this set with. And I think it will be the most serious I am the whole night. There was once a time and a place where people could open up their chests like this and show each other their hearts. And they did it on a regular basis. They would ask each other, how is your heart? How are you feeling? If you can't say, let me see what's inside. And so they would open up their 
chests and show each other their hearts. And you could see, was it beating strong or was it a little sluggish that day? Was it a nice rich color or was it bruised? How about the shape? And then they would talk and they would care for each other. And when the time was right, they would close back up and then move on their way. And in a way, they formed great community of care with each other. Well, there was a woman at that time who gained a reputation as having the most beautiful heart in the world. And she got that reputation because as she traveled from town to town, from holler to holler, to canyon to canyon, maybe she came out here, she would meet with people and not just look at their hearts, but also care for them. She, she might see that there was a part that had a little scab over it or bruised and she would talk about what had happened and then she would just reach right into their cavity there and take that hurt part of their heart between her fingers and rub it until it came off of there. And then she'd put that hurt part right onto her heart and take some of the strong bit of her heart that was left and pull a little bit off and put it right there. Now you'll carry part of me and I'll carry part of you. And no matter how much we hurt, we'll always have that bond. Now she'd done this for a number of people throughout the years, actually. That's how she gained this reputation. And she was a wanderer and... There came a day when she wandered into this town where a great crowd had gathered in the center of town. They had gathered because there was a man standing there right in the center, tall, standing up on a, a riser right there, talking out to everybody, speaking loudly with a commanding voice in such a way that caused people to listen to him. But really, he was bloviating at them. I hear tell that y'all think there's this woman who travels around that you say has the most beautiful heart in the world. Well, you should put me up on a pedestal higher than hers when you see my heart. <laughs> I've got the most beautiful heart in the world, and every one of you needs to know it. Let's make a comparison. Where is she? Bring her right up here. We'll put our hearts right next to each other and look at them, and you'll tell us who has the most beautiful heart in the world. And as I said, it just so happened that she had made her way to the back of that crowd to see if there was work to do in this town. And someone turned and recognized her because they had helped her through a problem. Uh, here she is right here. It's her. People turned. Yes, this is her. She's helped me too. And the crowd opened up, split like this. And she was brought up to the front slowly with her age. And when she got there, that man looked down and he <laughs> laughed. Her? This is the one that you all say has the most beautiful heart in the world? Not possible. Old woman, open up your chest and let me see your heart. She straightened up and opened up her chest and he saw her heart there. <laughs> this is gonna be easy. That thing? That's the most beautiful heart in the world. He looked and it was all misshapen because it was a patchwork of peace she heart from so many people. And instead of a rich red color, well, it was purple and brown and some parts of it were black, and scarred and rough. And she was so old, it was barely beaten right there. 
How could that be the most beautiful heart in the world? Look at mine. And he opened up his chest and the people saw this heart that was so perfectly shaped that there was a gasp across the crowd. And it beat strong. He was young. And it was just a rich red color that everybody thought it should look like. And as he was standing tall and they were all admiring it, well, that old woman, she just reached right up in there and took it in her hand and felt around to the backside to the very far reach of it where she was pretty sure, ah, there it is. A piece of his heart that he'd hidden even from himself a scarred part that she worked off and took from his heart and put onto hers, taking a part of hers and reaching up to replace that scar that had been formed there because of pride, because of ego. And as soon as she placed it in and smoothed it out, he breathed as if almost for the first time. And he looked around and saw all these people looking at him. And now that he carried part of her heart, it was as if they were all breathing together. And instead of putting him up on a pedestal, they welcomed him in because they'd all now had this bond together. A bond connected to the heart of that woman. Where was she? They looked around, but she was gone because as they were welcoming them into their community, she had made her way off to do more work somewhere else. She had work yet to do and heart to do it. And even though she couldn't be seen, the stories were continued to be told that she was the woman who indeed had the most beautiful heart in the world. That was Adam Booth with The Most Beautiful Heart in the World. Maybe you're thinking now of a person whose heart, albeit scarred and worn and imperfect, has made a beautiful difference in your life. We hope so. Thanks for joining us today on The Appleseed. And thanks to Donald Davis and Adam Booth for sharing their stories. Listening to these stories always brings up memories for me that I love to share. Where did the stories take you? And who will you take along? Our episode today was produced by Brian Tanner and Wendy Folsom. Our audio engineers are Carly Wilson and Ashton Parkinson. Trent Horton and Evie Hendricks make up the rest of the Appleseed team. If you want to send us a note, you can. Email us at theappleseed at byu.edu. That's theappleseed, all one word, at byu.edu. Or if you're listening through a podcast app, rate us. Leave us a little review. It helps people find the show. We're pleased and proud to be among the many shows in the BYU Radio family of programs. And you can find this episode or any episode from our archive on the BYU Radio app at byuradio.org slash Appleseed or by Googling the Appleseed podcast. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again on the Appleseed. Appleseed.